Hey guys, got a little loosey-goosey on this episode, so I wanted to give you a table of contents. Our guest is Reese Laresh. You should go get his book, God's Unwanted Child, first and foremost. Now, uh, you should skip ahead to 11 minutes if you don't want to hear a whole sad story of how it's the anniversary of my dad dying, although it does apply to the episode itself. You definitely want to hear the Eschaton song that I wrote. That's at 11 minutes. The episode proper and interview proper starts at 13 minutes, and our analysis, if you're only here for the analysis, that's at the 33-minute mark, okay? I did the hard work for you, you fucking bum. Let's start the show. In 1996... Author David Foster Wallace released his magnum opus, Infinite Jest, an 1,100-page post-postmodern takedown of the great American novel. It was a smash success all throughout the world. Unfortunately, it just wasn't very good. Famously dense and nigh unfinishable, the book earned a backlash as great as its praise. Join me, Jesse Dram, as we untangle this tale of boredom, addiction, and French-Canadian separatists in our quest of understanding on the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome. Happy Interdependence Day. It is the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast, episode number 12, pages... What the fuck is it? 321 to 343, I am your always genial host, Jesse Dram, podcaster, comedian, not extraordinaire, just ordinaire, podcast and comedian, ordinaire, got that on my business cards, don't know why nobody's calling, how you guys doing, we have a very good episode today, if I do say so myself, we have our first author on the podcast, Mr. Reese Laresh. If you just go and look down at your podcast thing there, you'll see the accurate spelling because I'm not looking at it right now. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to go on a whim. R E E C E L E and because it's Laresh, I'm going to assume capital R E S C H E. I guess that's some kind of French. Maybe he's Canadian. Maybe he's Quebecois. He was sitting the entire time we were doing our podcast, so he could have been uh, one of the wheelchair assassins for all I know. But uh, So Reese is a fan of the show. He reached out to me. He also has a book you should go check out. I'm going to go check out because it just happens to have a lot to do with my life today, weirdly enough. It's called God's Unwanted Child, and it has to do with a father-son story. It has to do with the after the afterlife, getting to choose which afterlife you live in, which uh, a lot of synchronicity today because we recorded today's episode. It is the 11th anniversary of my dad dying. Yeah. August 2nd has forever been dead dad day for me. You know, just in case anybody who listens to this gives a shit or has gone through it themselves, I'll give them the little story. The year was 2009. Uh, my grandmother had recently died. My paternal grandmother, after several years of lung cancer, wasn't even a smoker. Just bad luck. Got it somewhere. But, uh, yeah, she died. Well, honestly, all things concerned, dying of lung cancer, she was pretty much fine up until, like, the last week or so. And if you've ever watched someone slowly die, who boy, does it feel slow. Uh, so she was pretty much mentally all there until the end. She passed, um, I think like June 20th, something, I don't know, 2009. My father took it very hard, which, I mean, you know, eh, it's a bummer, but, you know, moms die, especially when they're 80s, you're 80 years old. You just got to deal with that. 
And uh, my grandmother, Catholic guilt, something that comes up in this podcast. By the way, you can find Reese online at Protestant guilt. So, yeah, we're two halves of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. If you cut a coin in half, that metaphor doesn't work. Anyway, my grandma died. My dad took it roughly. I had already decided that I was going to be moving to San Francisco in a few weeks. I had two buddies out there. Shout out Carlos and Marvin Arellano. Knew them both. Moved cross country to live with them. Could never pronounce their last name. I still don't know. But Carlos and Marvin had a nice place. And I, uh, I don't know. I wanted to go out there and do music because Philly at the time, it just didn't seem a good place to do music. Not realizing that, oh, yeah, the music industry as a whole was going to be dead. Like, you know, especially me as a rock and roll artist. Like, yeah, I'm going to be a rock star in the year 2009. I should go to San Francisco. That's where all the rock stars come from, right? I haven't read anything since 1967. Anyway, so I moved out there to pursue my dreams. And uh, on August 1st, we went out to a bar, got really drunk, didn't get lucky. So we came home, continued to drink, drinking to like 3, 4 in the morning. I go into my bedroom, and uh, I had still had the laundry from, I, I had completed earlier that morning, still unfolded, because, you know, bachelor life, whoop whoop. I still do that, by the way. And uh, my phone starts ringing suddenly. And I looked down at my phone, and it says my brother Luke's name. So I immediately know this must be some kind of emergency, because if they're calling me at 3, 4 a.m. in uh, San Francisco, in New Jersey, that means, you know, about 6, 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Can't be anything good. I answer, and I'm immediately confused, because it was not my brother on the phone. It was my mother, and my mom just start immediately crying and the first thing she says is like jesse i'm so sorry your father's dead uh what had happened was he had hurt his pelvis at work a few months before he'd been dealing with this he was very bummed out after his mother died he was still living in his mother's house which is a whole other thing it's a bit of the reason i rebel against my white trash roots um, he went to a card game at his friend's house and they said that he was chewing oxycontin like candy that he'd been prescribed for his pelvic injury, and he was drinking whiskey. And one of the girls walked him home, and she said, like, oh, we just fell asleep in bed together. But she woke up, and uh, Dad was blue, and not breathing, and not alive. And that was just it. Went home, got fucked up, brought some, brought some girl home, fell asleep, and never woke up. And then an hour or two later, I got a call in San Francisco, and my whole life got fucking changed. Still haven't really recovered from that. It's also um, strange, because I'm coming up on... Uh, by the way, I'll I'll give you... I'm going to go back and record in the beginning and give you guys a timestamp of when to actually listen to this, because I know I'm doing quite a bit here. But, uh, yeah, my, my stepfather died last year from... Uh, cancer and complications of alcohol he was he was in a fragile state due to cancer and he never healed correctly because of alcohol and inevitably a combination of the two killed him and both my brothers took it like like champs i don't know what it is if it was just the specific age you know my father died when i was 22 i always said if he had died four years i prefer he would have died four years sooner or four years later if he died four years sooner i think i would have gotten my life together a bit more 
like really hunkered down, gone and gotten a bachelor's. If he died four years later, I would have gotten to know my dad on a whole other level. And I got neither, you know. That's it. I am not religiously or spiritually inclined. I wish I was because it's, uh, I've explained to spiritual people, like, you guys have an antenna that I just don't have. I feel no presence of my loved ones who are gone, my father, my grandmother, my uh, friend Jessica, who (laughs) died on my 18th birthday from a brain aneurysm. Yeah. By the way, this is all of my comedy. My comedy is all about death. Go check out some of my videos. Jesse Dram. I'm on at YouTube at uh, Mr. Jessico. Again, really not good. Yeah, let's just do that again. Follow me at Jesse Dram on all the things. At Diamond Joe Quim on Reddit. Not dirty, just not enough characters. And I guess find me on Mr. Jessico. That is spelled, of course, the way Jessico is. J-E-Z-Z-I-C-H-O. And the Mr. is just M-R. But yeah, I got comedy on there. I talk a lot about death. Uh, So I just found it very strange that, you know, on the 11th anniversary of my dad dying, I just happened to be interviewing an author who wrote a book that's all about the afterlife and the relationships between sons and fathers. And we didn't get it into it that much on uh, the podcast just because I didn't. I, I, I felt that would be rude. I wanted to save that for when I was talking to all of you people here and be rude to you directly because I'm personable like that. But, uh, yeah, this has always been secondary Father's Day for me. Hilariously, the year after my dad died, uh, Father's Day was never huge for us. So a bunch of people checked in on me like, hey, just wanted to see how you were doing today. Like, oh, I'm I'm good. Why? What's up? Like, oh, you know, with it being Father's Day and all and your father being dead, just to make sure you're okay. Like, oh, well, I mean, now I'm not. I was I was fine before I picked up this phone, but. Uh, thank you for reminding me I'm supposed to be sadder than usual today. So <laughs> so seriously, guys, if you still have uh, your dads, I don't give a fuck about moms. Fuck your moms. Don't fuck your... There's a whole category. <laughs> son, I'm son. I'm stuck in this dishwasher. Can you help me? What are you doing? Sorry, maybe you watch different kind of porn than me. If you uh, still have your dads, go out, go out and give them a hug. Give them a kiss. And tell them to not mix Oxycontin and whiskey. Yeah. Tell them to get the blood pressure down and lose weight while you're at it. Because as I found out as the executor of his estate, fat guy coffins cost extra. So I got a little special treat for you today. Um, we also, the this chapter is all about the game of Eschaton, which is pretty great. I really enjoyed this chapter. But somebody clued me in early on that... The band, the Decembrists, actually made a music video where Eschaton is happening, and they're playing it there. I believe the lead singer is playing the role of Pemulus. There's somebody there in a uh, David Foster Wallace's signature white bandana, and also a pink wig. I don't know if David Foster Wallace went through a pink wig, like, <laughs> if he was a Lilu from The Fifth Element. I don't know. It might have looked good on him, but there we go. So... In uh, the spirit of that, hey, they made a video about Eschaton. I decided to write a song about Eschaton myself. However, unlike the Decembrists, who are, you know, modern indie darlings, I I come from a little heavier place, you know, closer to the streets, the little rock and roll, little metal. So, uh, here is my Eschaton song. Mushroom heads from sea to shining 
of recording artists, you can send my Grammy to P.O. Box 423, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19148. Uh, please speed ship it. We know there's not going to be any competition for that. Guys, thank you for joining me again. This is I Hate Infinite Chess Podcast, episode 12, pages 2, I mean 321 to 343, the Eschaton episode with Reese Laresh. Go check out his book, God's Unwanted Child. Here we are. I hate Infinite Jest episode 12. We are still going and no one is more surprised than myself. Today's chapter, pages 321 to 343. Happy Interdependence Day. We're at Eschaton. My guest this week is uh, author Reese Laresh. How are you doing, Reese? Doing great. Happy to be here. Nice. I have been looking forward to this. Now, you're one of uh, the, the. You reached out to me and made yourself aware, uh, made me aware of you and said you would like to come on. And I was uh, very excited to actually have an author on. So, yeah, real quick, uh, if you got anything to plug, where can we find you on social media? Where, where, can, where can we see what you're doing? I don't have a huge uh, social media presence. Uh, my handle on Twitter, I think, is Protestant Guilt. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but my uh, book is my first and only currently. I'm working on my second right now, but my first published book is God's Unwanted Child. Uh, you can pick that up on Amazon, or like I told you, you can circumvent that. It's also available on secondhand through Barnes and Noble and and some of my local bookshops. So, okay, cool. Could you? Uh, I, I actually read up a little bit on what that book is about, and I was pretty interested. If you could, uh, would you mind giving us a little summary about what God's Unwanted Child is about? Yeah. So it's um, definitely uh, sort of more of this almost urban existential angst type novel um, told through it's, it's very uh, for those who actually like infinite jest it's quite different um, it's not written in a lot of academic not, uh, language or anything like that oh so um, there's a, so there's a chance that it's readable and enjoyable then okay <laughs> just Sorry. some I, I think, uh, <laughs> okay um, yeah and it, it, it essentially plays with the ideas of there's a few themes going on there of uh, alcoholism um, and where that comes from, from a family perspective, uh, from a, especially a father and son perspective and how it goes down the line. It actually touches on that a bit. And it also pulls from, I was really uh, influenced. It was highly, I was highly influenced by uh, notes from the underground. I know you're a Dostoevsky mm -hmm. fan. Did you ever read that? I have not gotten to that one yet. No. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite Dostoevsky novel and it was really really influenced by that um and essentially it comes down to i won't even spoil the first couple of chapters but a person each chapter is paralleled by a vignette which <clears throat> this kid jack delaney essentially has to make a decision where to spend eternity because uh apparently in the afterlife you get to choose where you end up um and there's different you know buddhist eternity christian eternity even hell is a, is a choice you can make. Um, and then it's paralleled with different vignettes from out his life and sort of his struggle with alcoholism, alcohol abuse, all of that. Um, and I made it, I made a, a huge theme of the book would be like on Sartre's choices. So it's a, it's a pretty philosophical text, um, especially again, like I said, within 
the existential mind mind frame. So. Okay, cool. Sorry, I actually turned my mic off for a second. There was a train going by. It was loud. Of as um, yeah, I actually uh, want to talk about some synchronicity. When I when I read the uh, the, the the brief summary of your book on Amazon, uh, again, talk about synchronicity. We are actually recording this. This is, today is the eleventh uh, anniversary of my father's death from drug related stuff. So, but believe me, when it comes to I had a very strange, uh, yeah, it, I'm sorry to even just throw this on you because it is just kind of happening, no, no. but like I literally woke up this morning having had a dream about him, which if anybody has dead parents, you have every now and again, but it was a strange one where uh, he met my girlfriend for the first time. Of course, I met my girlfriend 10 years after he was gone, but yeah, that notion of getting to choose your own afterlife is something I have thought of quite a bit back when I was a younger uh well, you're Protestant guilt. I'm Catholic guilt. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, you bastard. Yeah. So. We got we got the good stuff. That's right. Pure uncut. Um, <laughs> not non-reformed. But yeah, I remember having that thought back when I was young, and I was uh, you know believed in heaven and hell and all that. Which dear God, I envy those days. We could just like yeah, that's that's what happens. But why why would it be anything else? Simpler times. Yeah. Yeah, simpler times. Mom and dad told me these things, and they're the right things, because, I mean, they're mom and dad, so they would know. But I just remember, like, my great-grandmother died, and just thinking, like, oh, if I saw her in heaven, like, maybe she decided to be a 12-year-old in eternity. Maybe that's where she was happy. Maybe that's going to be my babchi coming up, asking me to, like, play hula hoop or something. Like, it's pretty strange. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would actually venture to say, if anybody is interested in the book, it's a little bit more... Uh, pessimistic than uh, simply like, oh, good, maybe like maybe heaven's a viable choice. It's actually one of the first choices, and it doesn't seem to work for Jack. So, just that, just up, so no, no, I'm very, I'm very interested. I think I'm probably going to track down a copy of that. So, obviously, you're here on I8 Infinite Jest, so you must have a thought or two on the book and the oh, author. Yeah, oh, very much. Yeah. All right. Well, what was your first introduction to? Uh, well, yeah, let's go a bit grander. What was your first inkling that like, oh, I really like books and I really like telling my own stories. How, how did you get to that point to pursue this as a career? Yeah, I actually, uh, when I was, I think, I think I remember the exact moment I was at my grandparents' house and my mom used to drop us off there, uh, quite often. And they had this massive library. Um, and there wasn't much to do. There weren't video games and they had VHS tapes and that was it. And once the VHS tapes were up, it was, you know, my grandfather was essentially like, we got plenty of books. And I'm like, I never really liked reading books at school, but I'll try it. And, and, you know, he had some of the more classical, you know, like, like Poe and, and Moby Dick and a lot of the uh, 19th century American lit. And I just took a shine to it like right away. Um, I went to actually, like you said, you're Catholic. I went to a Catholic school. Um, I had to sit in the back during mass because I was Protestant. So they kind of. That's good. They had, to, they, had, they, they, had to keep, they had to keep you away. We didn't want any, you my, know. My, my wife and I were actually, it's funny. We're talking about this because just the other day we passed by the old school and, and she was laughing because she never knew this, but they used to actually kind of just put the kids who wanted their parents wanted them there for a good education but once Friday mass happened, they were like, well, you can't really, you know, you're not confirmed Catholic. So we went in the back, uh, <laughs> you know, that started my on. 
No, I started my on week religion in general. So sorry, go ahead. It's, no, no, the notion of Catholic schools is still just such a confusing. When you think of the things they have to do to like duck and dodge around that, that like, you know, well, obviously we yeah. want their money, but I mean, we can't have a Protestant here, <laughs> you know, spitting on communion wafers, which I'm sure is a thing they must do, the animals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and that was uh, that was English was always my best subject. Uh, I always, mm. you know, even when my grandfather kind of introduced me to more a different side of reading, uh, uh, English, I was just always really great at like technical writing and and all of that. Um, and then I got to high school, uh, went through that. Um, my counselor asked me, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "You know, I just kind of want to major in major in English. Uh, that's I really like it, and that's what I'm best at." <clears throat> And when I went to now segueing into, of course, Wallace, uh, when I went to U of A I'm from Tucson, Arizona, born and raised, um, my freshman year, it wasn't even a month in, uh, I think that Wallace had killed himself, that that was his suicide. Mm -hmm. um, I had never heard of David Foster Wallace before that. He was not on my radar and I was a huge reader. Mm -hmm. uh, I had never even heard of him pre-college but being an English major especially young English major um and getting that news um and hearing about it the next day and I'm like who the fuck is David Foster Wallace but everybody you know was just the talk of the town especially at U of A because he had gone there he mm. went there for his graduate degree in the 80s and so of course being an English major at U of A word kind of passed down and you know that's 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 where I first heard of him so okay yeah I honestly I don't remember where exactly I heard of him because I remember it was only doing this podcast that uh, like my, my cousin Frank, who was on episode six, which I, I like that I refer to him as like capital C cousin Frank, as if that's like a, his stage name. But he has been very important to my literary life. He's introduced me to pretty much everything I've gotten. But I know I didn't hear about Infinite Jest from him because he was just as like perplexed that I was getting into it, at, you know, as he was it just somehow like found its way in the i yeah. i've always looked up uh, if anything is labeled a masterpiece i will go and look at it because yeah. i even things i don't a hundred percent get or fully enjoy i like seeing i like seeing a master of the craft at like the peak of their mastery that's why even like i can't even for whatever reason like i i thought and this is my young blue collarness like Oh, well, intellectual, uh, you know, wealthy people listen to a lot of classical music because that's what movies and TV shows have told me. So I should probably, you know, like uh, Fitzgerald said, Americans as the temporarily embarrassed millionaires, like, well, when I get that million dollars, I better know my Bach and my Strauss, but just can't get into it 100%. But I can still appreciate like, oh, this is so damn complex that I can't even... Uh, really comprehend it, which was what I mentioned to you. I've always been fascinated by writers because having done comedy and sketches and even writing like a film script or two, when I imagine, yeah, I tend to be one of those people that anything I like, I want to try myself. Like I love rock and roll. So I wanted to play guitar and be in a band. And then I love comedy. Like, oh, let me give that a try. Uh, thankfully I like professional wrestling and it only took one match and a really fucked up back to never, ever try it again. But yeah, novels, it's just, it seems so incredibly complex. Like I could not imagine writing a first draft and then being like, oh, okay, well, I should probably change this, this, and this, and then having to 
rewrite the entire book basically to have that flow the whole way through. Um, what, what would you say was like your process leading up to like, what, what did you discover about writing from writing your first novel? I think that, uh, uh, probably after, as you said, the first draft and going back, um, and I still kind of, um, have this thought, I think when, when looking at the novel, but, um, that probably writers, when they first look at it, it's a really, when they first look at their, their writing, they go back over to edit. Um, I think that it's really humbling for authors because when we're, at least for me, and I'm sure it's for other authors as well, uh, when they're <laughs> typing, there's this idea in your head. You know, there's this idea, this picture that everyone's going to read it um, and everyone's going to get the same notion um, of, uh, and ideas that you're trying to convey. Uh, and unfortunately, when you go back to edit your own piece, um, before anybody else gets their hands on it, you realize, wow, I'm kind of an idiot or, you know, <laughs> wow, I'm not as, I'm not as smart as I always thought I was, you know, which, which I think actually with, with most authors, you know, that don't take a sort of laissez-faire sort of who, who gives a shit attitude. Um, I think it's, it's really, there is a, there is a bunch of anxiety behind that, you know, because even when you have this final product, you go back, sometimes you can't help it and you read it and you're like, God, if only I had changed that one thing or this one chapter, or, you know, his voice isn't right here. So there's a lot of, lot of anxiety that goes into, into writing, but that's, that's first impression. That's one thing that taught me from writing a, a whole novel at first, even after going through editing it two to three times. So, okay. Interesting. Fascinating. Um, okay. So yeah. So once, uh, and after this, we can get to the breakdown, but yeah. So you first heard of David Foster Wallace after he passed, you were attending one of his alma maters that he'd gone to for grad school. So when you actually like dug into him, what did you, what did you find? And let me just say this now, cause this is going to be the follow-up question anyway. So maybe this will help you put it together, but like I said, part of this is me not fully understanding the machinations of being an author. David Foster Wallace seems to a man and woman to be worshipped by other authors. So sure. this might be a little bit of that mastery where it's like, I I can't quite see the little details he's pulling off there. I want to I know what makes him so unequivocally a master to other authors that the layman might be missing out on. Well, I'll... Actually, I'll answer kind of that first. I think that the, <clears throat> I think there is, or tends to be, uh, maybe not amongst the more top tier authors, um, but I think there is a bit of equivocation. Uh, not, I'm not calling you an, a liar, of course, but, uh, but I think, I think some authors actually uh, don't speak out about Wallace because maybe their reputation would uh, sort of maybe be tarnished by how could you not like David Foster Wallace? Mm -hmm. um, but in, in light of that, and for praise for Wallace, actually, um, I think that a lot of authors see him as um, a person that was, again, the brilliant genius, as you've said before. Um, he writes, <sighs> at, the, at the end of it, you have a thousand, almost 1100 page book that, like you said, you emailed me last night, I can't even imagine all of the machinations going behind all of these wheels turning to make something that is you know, to make this one story happen, which is, which is essentially really four stories all happening at once mm -hmm. in 1100 pages with endnotes that are very detailed, very, uh, you know, 
very much come from, I mean, let's face it, the guy was writing with a medical and a technical dictionary right next to him the whole time, mm. you know, and, and, and some of us wonder, yeah, like how, how often was he just throwing out these, these words that he just read about? And he's like, oh, I could put that into the story. But I think where authors really might resonate or love Wallace is that his, his novel is sublimely clever. You know, it really is. It comes down to that. Um, it's, <clears throat> it's a book that when we finish as an author, it might, it, it seems like, wow, I've really climbed this mountain of, of, of writing and editing and, and finishing a 300 page novel. Um, here's this guy who half the readers can't even understand him and throw it against the wall, mm. uh, who wrote 1100 pages and it's, and it's mesmerizing in, in a sense, you know, that, that right. he could sit and commit himself that that his commitment to this book would be so so intelligent you know and and i know, believe me i'm not i'm not here to i'm not here to cheerlead for for walls because i have plenty of criticisms uh you know i'm not i'm not one of the absolute fans but i think and also what's really noble about wallace's book is that no matter no matter what you think about infinite jest there is uh he wrote what he wanted to write he wasn't Suzanne Collins. Uh, he wasn't whoever wrote Twilight. He didn't hit on whatever the popular fiction would be at the time because he could write something that would be, he, he had the equipment, you know, mm -hmm. up here to write something that would be entertaining, that would be sell millions. You know, mm -hmm. he could do that. Instead, he wrote what he wanted to write about essentially this at, at the core of father and son trying to communicate with one another. Okay. Sorry, if that was kind of long-winded, I... No, 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 that, that, that was perfect. That was perfectly fine. <laughs> and uh, as, as for actually my first, uh, I've, read, I've read the book twice, um, actually, and I know that seems like a big deal uh, for are, some, but. Are, are you going to be one of those guys that like, it really needs to be read twice to be fully appreciated? No, no, I don't think so. As a matter okay. of fact, actually, I, I, I had uh, the first time I read it out of, I, feel, I felt like a social obligation because at U of A, everybody, all the English majors were like, yeah, you got to read it. You have to read it now. So of course I felt obligated to. And by the time I was finished, I was like, this is a pile of shit. You know, everything, <laughs> everything. I, 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 and I, and I even went back and I, and I kind of, you know, uh, played the fool. I was, I was like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, this is great. You know, wow. What a, what a genius. And the whole time I'm kind of biting my knuckle, like, that guy was a fucking, he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and actually it wasn't until, it wasn't until years later, uh, much, uh, like that I, that I began reading it again. And it, 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 that was when I actually liked it. So I have read it twice, which seems like a lot, but I believe there are like huge David Foster Wallace fans that read it like annually, biannually. So uh, yeah, yeah. I saw been, the, the, the infinite summer subreddit. Yeah. Apparently that's the thing they do every year. And I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this, there's no way I do like the book. Uh, and again, I, it's the second time going through, I do like it. I think as I matured, I kind of liked it a little more. I, I'm actually a teacher as well. I think that when I started teaching um, and I could see human beings a little bit more in that capacity, mm -hmm. uh, it resonated a little bit more, at, at least with the entertainment aspect. Um, but I can tell you this right now, there is no way in hell whether I die tomorrow or at 110, then I'll ever pick that book up again. And I do like it, but I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who the fuck's reading it uh, annually. That's, that's insane. Yeah. That's, it, it really, it really speaks to some people. 
And that's something I actually have here in my notes, but really it's not particular to any section I was talking about. I do feel that when it comes to fiction and who people really latch onto, there's, there, there's kind of two divisions people go in, which is they either, they either like reading something and somebody like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. I really like that thought. But I think there's another avenue of fiction, and I would say this is one of it, and I actually kind of make the comparison to David Foster. It's funny you mentioned that with The Twilight. I kind of make a comparison of David Foster Wallace to a young adult uh, novelist in that it seems a big appeal of this book is he is trying, like a lot of people read this book and they go, oh, that's me or some version of me. Yeah, I, I think see- the same for, I, I think there's almost like an idea of Wallace too um, behind him. Like people watch, um, you've brought up before the end of tour Mm-hmm. And like his interviews specifically, like for those who have read or not even read uh, Infinite Jess, and they say I, exactly what you just said, that like that really, man, we're kindred spirits, you know, mm-hmm. that that type of thing. So I think there's like this idea of Wallace even beyond his writing that, you know, he's this, he's become this sort of icon or central figure, this titan of of the literary world that people just want to, you know, be with or resonate with, whatever. Yeah, he's he, he's definitely got big, like, uh, I, I would say on the internet, he has a little bit of, like, the cool big brother that died when you were 12. That, like, you're, you're right. only going to remember him for how fucking cool he was. And if he was here now, I'm sure he would take me on a ride on his motorcycle and mom and dad would still be together. But... <laughs> Comparing bandana collections and all that. Yes, exactly. Okay, let's get into it. What we got here. As I said before, this is all taking place during Eschaton. Eschaton meaning doomsday. You and I talked before this that uh, I actually knew that because I knew eschatology was somebody who really studied or was fascinated with the end times. Again, Catholic kind of comes with it. We got to think about the end times a lot. Um. The technical jargon for uh, uh, the, the uh, oh, great. I spoke before I even knew the word, the uh, rapture. Sorry. Good okay. job. You look like a fool, <laughs> sir. <laughs> that was a tough word, yeah. Also, Catholic, again, rapture, made up, not in the Bible. Let's get to it. Um, <laughs> God. Okay. Um, you've listened to this. You know how it goes. I'm going to do the summary. If you have anything to say, just interrupt me because I got a lot of notes. So, Interdependence Day, November 8th. Year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. Every year at Enfield, a dozen kids, early pubescent kids, between 12 to 15, get fanatically devoted to a game called Eschaton that is incredibly complex. No one's sure when and where it came from, but some aspects of it date it. Its basic structure had coalesced by the time Pemulus was 12 and came to be seen as the best player in the game's history. It's incredibly addictive. First and foremost, they say there's certain aspects of it that date it, and I guess the countries was some of that because uh, we still have the Soviets represented. But that, that, again, that's one of the tricks with like just the time period he wrote this book, because obviously if he began it in the 80s, then the Soviet Union was still a thing. But like by 96, you wonder if that's something he just didn't bother to go back and change or right. didn't feel it relevant or right. no. Um, the game requires one player to wear the beanie. This year, it's Otis B. Lord, which is quite fitting because the role of, he plays in the game is essentially that of God. Uh, though as the game's best player, Pemulus has a kind of honorable authority in the game still. The teams are South Af, South Africa, Indpac, India slash Pakistan, 
Red China, Libya, Syria, and I think there's a variant in there that's Iran, Libya, Syria, Amnat for North America, and Sovor for Soviet Union, Warsaw Pact nations. Eschaton requires 8 to 12 people and 400 highly worn tennis balls in an open area equivalent to four tennis courts and assorted tennis, yeah, tennis paraphernalia, there it is, and 40 available megabytes of RAM. Speaking of dating yourself, wow. Um, Hal wrote the rule book himself at Penulus's insistence. The 400 tennis balls represent a five megaton nuclear th thermonuclear warhead. Each team is called a combatant. They are arranged and they're corresponding to their location on the planet Earth they represent. I wrote that really clumsily. Basically, the four courts make out an overall imagined map. So obviously, North America is going to be up in the north top left and Australia is going to be down in the bottom right. Um, what do you think of this game? Because it's very, it's very Wallace. Yeah, actually, it, that's the best way to describe it um, with that adjective. Um, you know, even on this, even on the second read through, I think this is one of the chapters back then I, that while reading it, I'm like, oh my god, this is everything I hate um, <laughs> about Infinite Jest. Actually, all within one chapter. Mm -hmm. um, and I think actually, there, there again, it's about fifty fifty on this chapter because there are so many things that I do like. Uh, which we'll get into as we kind of go mm -hmm. through the chapter. But this is very, this chapter itself is very telling of Wallace's writing style, at least within Infinite Jest and Fiction, mm -hmm. um, being so that <laughs> there's so much technical jargon. Uh, it's such a uh, 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 intricate game. And again, he writes it with all this minutiae. I don't know if, are we at the point with the end note yet? You know, and it's it's essentially a two and a half page endnote, and the and the endnote pages should be about five pages. You know, you double them because mm -hmm. it's such small print. Um, but yeah, the as far as what I think of the chapter itself, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. You know, it's one of those, <laughs> one of those eye rolling chapters where you're just like, this is not what I signed up for in reading this. Of course, it is what I signed up for. Um, but I actually do like the it play. It's gonna by the end of this after this chapter um at at specifically at eta um eschaton is going to come up quite a bit specifically this match in eschaton um oh. i don't know huge plot point um but it will be referenced quite a bit on interdependence day um but i think i think it was really cool that uh, one of the cool things i thought about it was that you know here are these kids and it's supposed to represent just how precocious they are you know mm -hmm. by nature they're they're you know, other kids are out there playing video games and this is their way of, this is their form of entertainment, essentially, you know, this, this game of Eschaton, um, where they, where even us as adults were, we're reading about it. And we're like, what the fuck are they talking about? You know, mm -hmm. but they've, they've created this entire mean theory, um, and average theory, uh, which he has to explain with an end note. And it just goes to show just the mindset of a lot of kids at ETA. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, and their, their intelligence it probably speaks to the walls a little bit as an adult or even as a adolescent as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say, I, I told you that we needed to watch a music video to go along yeah. with this one. That would be if, I don't know how you're listening to this podcast and aren't aware of it, but the video for the Calabity song by the Decemberists actually pretty much plays out this entire game. We actually say the singer clearly seems to be dressed as a uh, pemulus with his yachting captain's hat. And I can tell you one thing after watching that video, after reading all this, I did not imagine the game moving that slowly, even though it is pretty much described as such that it's like a slow lob exercise 
Um, yeah, I don't. I, I yeah, almost feel the reason I believe it's allowed to be played uh, that that CT that Tavis allows them to play it is because it's seen as almost tennis practice, I believe. Right, right. They say it's uh, because it's very specific, like targeted targeted strikes more than anything else. Yeah. Even though it's you know completely about aim or anything else. Uh, yeah, I have. I do have a note here on the lengthy footnote one twenty three that is written by Pemulus himself as dictated to Hal, which again, I haven't gotten far in this book, but like, does that indicate that Hal is the author of all the footnotes or is that just a strange thing for just right there? You know what? I really don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but one thing that you notice as the book goes on that I remember noticing is there's one chapter really towards the very end um that it becomes obvious that it's some kid at eta that's narrating um and then i always wondered that too there's there's the first person perspective from Hal and a few other characters uh, i think like at the start mm -hmm. um but i always questioned too and and again i never went that much into detail uh, after i finished it i i did a lot of research to sort of understand exactly what the fuck but i think when you finish the book i'm not going to give any ending or whatever i think when you finish the book you're going to just from your notions of what the book is already i think you're going to be kind of like fuck i'm i you know i i don't i don't know why i even started this book i would uh, love to talk about it after it's done um but I, I i don't know that that part always confused me is the switch from narrator as well because mm -hmm. sometimes it's like really informal and sometimes it's very formal um mm -hmm. and then that specific end note is yes being you know how writing it um but i i don't know i couldn't even tell you on as far as narrator is concerned in the third person for mm -hmm. that because i that's something i've always i've always wondered as well who's wow. who is writing in the third person because it seems so informal mm -hmm. well, <laughs> excuse me. I, I have another note on that right here uh real quick again about the game so the mean value theorem for integrals determines the practical distribution of megatonnage in relation to a combatant's country representative yearly military budget. I'm gonna spoil it right now. My notes I literally have at a certain point. Okay, I'm too dumb to understand any any of this. I think the overall gist is that, like, actually seeing the music video and how it's played out, it's like, oh, this is unnecessarily complicated. But I think that's part of what it, the whole thing with the game is that they could easily just do this game with like, you know, you have so many of these targets and you have so many weapons to hit the other ones and whoever wins all the other ones and destroys all them but still have any left, they win. And then they just throw the fucking statistics on it. Just like it could easily be played without the statistics, but then it loses some of like the megalomaniacal aspect to it, which I think is something the ETA kids really like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I And again, I wouldn't say, oh, I'm so... You know that's that's exactly how i felt reading that and i read every single word and, <laughs> and i'm like i'm a fucking english major so i don't know what he's talking about you know i i, I math over my head i you know I, so. I, cr credit to him you very rarely find somebody who uh can really grasp both the written word and english and spoken word and all that as well as like the hard science of maths that's and his i think his uh <clears throat> you said you said yourself that this is the jest um there's kind of this theory that i almost believe in um that i've read about that on every page david foster walls is kind of 
laughing and winking at you and nudging you, uh, you know, which was also the theory of, uh, I don't know if you've heard about him or heard of him, but Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was, I think, That's Wallace's my... favorite philosopher. Okay. What's that? No, yeah. no, no. It's va I vaguely recall that, but I'm not sure where from. And, and his first and really mostly during his entire life until the end of his life uh, published novel of philosophy was the Tractus. And he uh, and ever there's this strong theory that everyone's it's so complex. It's so uh, difficult to understand without any previous knowledge, even with uh, previous knowledge. It's sort of everyone still scratches their head. And there's this theory that uh, Wittgenstein was kind of laughing. It was a, it was all this big joke. You know, mm. it was kind of this. This, like I'm fucking with you the whole time um and I always wonder that too because I know that I know that that Wallace is you know with all this minutia that's in the that's in the novel I always wonder is this some is that what is that what what it's all about you know but I, I know he was going at something but it's an interesting theory anyway right um I have another ugh, this is so fucking annoying so in Pemulus's note footnote here we have again several so then but then so which again, this is one of the things that drives me nuts because like it's been multiple characters doing it at this point. Like this, it, this reads to me as just like and anybody else, this would be bad writing as opposed to like, oh, well, he just loves saying this. Like then why are all these different, like, oh God, like the last chapter where we had uh, poor Tony and poor Tony is using these ridiculous words that it makes no sense for somebody with that background to have. Yeah. Ah, it's just fucking, I don't, I don't think there's any and that that was always kind of a, a a beef I had too because is it somebody again dictating about the character or no but they're using it in dialogue too you have to kind of you know you can't use your own voice in that situation and and I think that everyone does sort of give Wallace this pass you know like oh let right. him kind of flex his his love of linguistics or whatever but it, it doesn't make sense in certain characters I like that you actually brought that up last week it's, yeah yeah well thank you it's I, I need that little bit to Again, there is a little bit reading this book where it's like, am I, am I just dumb? Like, how do I, how do I not get this? And I'm sure there's some people who will probably think that's it. Anyway, so in quainter days, the amount of balls distributed to whom was determined by Yahtzee dice, but that would leave out the fun of math. And who wants that? Pemulus has uploaded NSTAT stats cruncher software onto an old computer of James and Candenza's and he's taught Otis lore. And that's where my note literally, let, let me look at it. And it this is my note of frustration. And it devolves into another run-on paragraph about the particular computer that needs to be stolen from Stitt's office and where it needs to be plugged in on the courts. And every time we get one of these, I just picture DFW's eyes rolling in the back of his head while he jerks off with a Vaseline-coated bandana that he has primed and ready to go just for the occasion. <laughs> like it's And you know what's funny? Later on in this, I actually realized, oh, he does another one of those huge run-on paragraphs, and I didn't notice because there is – one particular thing about this chapter that, uh, you know what I was going to say, but I might as well say it now. So much of this book, the reason this chapter stands out a lot to me is almost all the action of in this book is usually somebody referring to it long after it has happened. And this is one of the only chapters I can think of where the action is actually developing in real time in front of us. Mm -hmm. And which is all actually all the funnier and actually very, very clever because, again, all the previous action has been described by somebody else, whereas now that we have actual action, and it is metaphorical for much huger global thermonuclear wars. That, so when we're seeing action, it's like, well, I have to give a little action because, I mean, it's so goddamn <laughs> huge. But I'm yeah, I, here, So, yeah. 
Right. <laughs> Wait, what was that? You would let? No, I was saying, yeah, you got to throw that in because, oh, I'm going to lose people here if I saw previous action and, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. If we just got to them the next day discussing, boy, that was a hell of an eschaton yesterday. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> so, teams Amnot and Savor typically end up with 400 megatons each with the rest consistently divided. Pieces of Dennis Keir, uh, Dennis Keir, tennis gear are placed in the combatants' territory to mirror and map strategic targets. Uh, warheads can be launched independently or several at once via elastic jock supporters. This is only allowed if the game enters full apocalypse mode. Sack pop strikes against civilian populations. This is done as a last resort, as in actual nuclear war, it results in such a loss of points. Both involved teams end up eliminated from contention. You know, I looked around on YouTube. I really thought I would be able to find people actually playing this game, and I was shocked that I could not. Yeah, only the only the Decemberists, right? That's the band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The only the Decemberists have a uh, simulation of it. I had never heard of that song either, but I think they kind of nailed it pretty well. Uh, oh yeah, no, I, it looked pretty. They acted it out pretty well too, down to the detail of like. You know, going uh, well. You know, when he decides to strike the actual person, and the guy playing essentially right. Pemulus reacts exactly as he's described in the book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I. I uh, that's surprising. I, I never looked that up, but um, that considering the following that Wallace has, I'm I'm surprised that there aren't YouTube videos as well on that. That's. So. Uh, I'm. Um, I'm very curious to look into this stuff. I've. I've mentioned to people that like one of my pie in the sky goals for this podcast. That's not going to happen is I would like to get Michael Schur on. Michael Schur was one of the executive producers on The Office. He was the creator of Parks and Rec, but he is a massive Infinite Jest fan. Supposedly, it is rumored that he personally bought the film rights to Infinite Jest, but he has no intention of filming it himself. He just does not want anybody else to make it. <laughs> Which, like, that is some goddamn fandom right there. I was about to say, that. that's, that's about a, the most zealot thing you can do <laughs> um, yeah just just the idea that like this could never be made into a movie um but you know even reading it too i i think it would just because it's so long and complex i feel like a movie within with like episodes almost like they do on hbo or something mm. but i think it would defeat the purpose of the novel itself the novel itself is uh, this huge indictment on entertainment you know mm -hmm. and that's and one of one of the things i always i tell people and i'll bring it up now with the one of my theories um was is that wallace kind of made this so dense filled with like a, not to use a word twice but minutia uh you know in in there and so intricate with end notes that i think almost he's trying to work his own little literary device in there of making the novel so boring and, and again, I don't think it's boring. I'm not, please don't, you know, kill me for that remark, but I don't think it's boring, but trying to make it boring, trying to make it overwrought that people who pick it up and read it say, I'm bored and I go do something else. And I think at the heart of it, it's always like, well, you know, it's this novel about, it, it has several themes actually, especially when you get later on in the, in the book, there are themes that come up that you're like, I, I didn't even see him making those connections, but specifically on boredom and entertainment where he makes this dense novel and he shows us what do these people do in order to combat their boredom. They play eschaton, 
you know, at ETA because they're so bored and they, you know, they have nothing else to do except for watch these video cartridges. And then once a year get to play Eschaton as this, but you know, it's not supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be tennis practice or people use drugs or people eat. Mm -hmm. There's all these recovery programs for things that people do just to combat boredom. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's one thing I would say about that. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm no, no, sorry. No, 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 dude. It's not, it's not even you. I'm looking at these notes coming up and just like, fuck, I really wrote all this down. Um, <laughs> the rules of Eschaton. I'm kind of going on tangents here. So no, I'm no, 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 no. That's what, that's, that's what you're here for. I didn't, I didn't invite you on here to believe me. <laughs> I've had a few people on where I've been like, I'm really doing a lot of the talking. I should stop that. So. Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, winner is the combatant with the best ratio of in-deer versus soft-deer. In-deer being infliction of death, destruction, and incapacitation of response, and in-deer being the inverse of that. Roughly, the team that strikes the most opposing territories, representations of manufacturing and population, and receives the least damage of their own, wins. But in practice, it's a mix of that and anal retentive record-keeping that requires three hours of number crunching to actually record and confirm uh, again, saying I didn't understand really, I picture the game going faster, even though I have right here in my notes, Eschaton moves slowly at the pace of chess. The nature of the game has the odd effect of turning these children into world leaders, weighing the lives of millions. That's actually pretty good foreshadowing considering what's going to come. Um, Amnat has won ear libsir to its temporary allegiance by making sinister promises about the fate of Israel though nobody is playing as Israel today. That was pretty funny. Um, o Oda's Lord rolls the computer around the court on a, on a food cart, keeping track of destruction and score. His data also allows minute calculations. For example, that Peoria, Illinois topographic flatness ups the effective kill radius of Sawbor's five megaton direct hit. Although I added my own note in parentheses, this ignores that no nation, no matter how cheap their nukes, would ever waste a bomb on Peoria. That's right. Fuck you, Illinois, except for Chicago. <laughs> um, uh, there's a joke here about nuclear fallout leading to microcephalic children to Montreal for 22 generations. Poor Quebec getting more toxicity. Hal and Pemulus and Trolls lounge nearby. Interdependence Day is a mandatory day of rest and relaxation, but they're taking it a bit far by openly smoking cigarettes and pot in public. Hal is nervous smoking weed in front of his little buddies. The Lord requests Pemulus' help with a theorem for a calculation. After about half the missiles have been expended, Amnat appears in the lead. Postal weight has been the MVL, most valuable lobber for the last two years with a beautiful accuracy rate. Sack pop, which again is the big civilian strike all-out war, has so far been avoided. Sawbor is absorbing so much collateral damage, though, that sack pop seems inevitable. Sawbor Premier Timmy Peterson <laughs> petitions Lord for a scrambled call to Air Force One. A scrambled call is a message sent privately as opposed to the typical shouting across the courts. The private message is ferried by Lord between the nations. Trosh says, what a beautiful day for an eschaton, until Pemulus threatens to slap him. Lord ferries back and forth with his rolling computer tray, sharing messages from Sabor and Amnot. The older kids can tell from the pattern that the teams are mostly fucking around to make Lord run back and forth. Again, that's a little thing that I think that makes this chapter works a bit for me, is... Uh, they are sure to point out, like, these are kids, so they are going to just fuck around with the guy. Um, yeah. Poor, poor Otis Lord. What a, what a sad god to be treated by all these kids. Um, and yeah, not, was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go for it. No, I just, I, I actually kind of like the setting 
uh, for the novel too, because it reminds me of no matter where you went to school, there must have been some way to circumvent, you know, the rules and make a game out of it. And I feel like that's what they're doing. And there's all these highly intelligent kids making this game about, you know, oh, well, we're doing it as tennis practice, but you know, you got the older kids back there and then the younger kids that are fucking around and, mm-hmm. and you know, and eventually it, it becomes this all out war on the tennis court while the mm-hmm. older kids are kind of watching. Uh, I also like in this part too, I think because you just read that, that Hal is reticent to kind of smoke weed because there's kids around. Um, and, and that's, and it shows a bit about where Hal comes from, especially later on in the book, because I, I think, by this point, I don't think that's a spoiler. I think by this point, you realize that Hal has this anxiety um, about just smoking weed in general, that he's becoming addicted just to the feeling of it, that it, that it gives him this escape. Oh, yeah. from- they, they, they've gone deep into his uh, particular ritual for it being just as enticing as the high itself, which as somebody, my, my own particular... Uh, my own particular chemical regimen is based very much on just routine. So I kind of, I, I kind of get that a little bit. Although uh, it's, I'm a little curious what's happening with Hal. I must admit uh, Steve Clark from episode two, di- he didn't spoil something for me really, but he did say like, <laughs> it's funny. The early people on the podcast have talked to each other about the podcast. So right. the guy from episode one and messaged the guy from episode two and said, "Hey, what do you think happens to what do you think happens to Hal at the yeah. beginning slash end?" And Steve's telling me this, and like, dude, are you really telling me we're not going to fucking know? Like, I, that's, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I immediately assumed it was something with DMZ. That that seems to be where it is leading up to. So mm-hmm. I don't. Again, I again, I don't want to spoil anything. I did. Uh, by the let me put it this way by the second time i finished actually by the first time i finished as well but not i didn't care as much the second time i read the book um i had to it was like i was compelled to kind of see wait that's a that's the ending you know and i think most people get that and that's why they get frustrated like there's no payoff at the end um but what's the i apologize i don't i don't remember the serpinski triangle correct oh the serpinski gasket yeah uh right and that has a lot to do with, I think what Wallace was trying to do was he was very, with Infinite Jest, it was very experimental. Uh, so I, I don't think he even knew, unless he had the world's greatest publicist, uh, I don't think he even knew that this was going to work because it's not a setup like the, like the here's the start, here's the Ed novel, like most of us do mm-hmm. right, in fact. Um, so again, it was experimental. At the end of this, I'm a little bit worried that you're going to sort of say, I'm not even doing a last episode, fuck this book. Um, oh, well, because- I said I said that would be the absolute funniest. <laughs> so I haven't ruled it out yet. But okay. Um, and again, I don't want to spoil anything. I do remember that he had, I believe it was the first or second episode that one of mm-hmm. the guys um, had that you had on had mentioned. Uh, you have to go back and read the first chapter again. Correct. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that was Dan Ostrov just because we were discussing the first chapter, and I know he particularly was very like you know you don't realize you're reading the end right now. So he right. kind of, he kind of gave that away. Which... Actually. And there's more than just the first chapter. Um, mm-hmm. You guys have already kind of gone over it. There are other chapters that kind of need to be read again. As soon as you finish the last, last chapter, I mm-hmm. think it's 70 something. The very last chapter, there's, I think at least two or three other chapters that you need to reread. Okay. Um, well, see, I know part of it is when he put, he kind of puts up the guide kind of the Rosetta Stone for the book when yeah. he actually uh, chronologically lists the years. 
yeah. and we find out the year of glad is the most re- is the last chronologically and, it, and that's when that's first revealed that's and the huge issue with that is that people don't realize they're supposed to be or, or maybe they do maybe mm-hmm. some of the more intelligent readers are picking up on that but i think the majority of readers don't realize until almost halfway through the end of the, through the book you're supposed to be taking not notes but sort of notate you know noting oh wait this is you're the glass that'd be after you know so it, again it, it makes this mm. this whole mix of things this is actually one of the things that i dislike about the book uh, is that structure i think he was trying to do something experimental for me personally it didn't work mm. uh, it I, I i think you've said before there's this brilliant 250 page book within 1100 pages and i right. agree to some extent i actually think there's this brilliant 500 page book within mm-hmm. 1100 pages i think even more it could be said maybe five to six hundred pages the problem is is that where the frustration lies is is by the end of it you're like for me at least that didn't work i wish that they had actually gone chronologically in this because it's a great story I think it really is a great story. I mean, the um, frustration for me so far hasn't necessarily been the chronology. It's just been, I, I complained, it was either last week's episode or the week before, where we really spent some time with Don Gately, like, for mm-hmm. the first time. It's like, why the fuck is this happening 300 pages in? Right. Because I know yeah. that's a lot of people, I, I feel like a lot of people who are, I hate to use the term apologist for something as benign as a book but uh really try to excuse away like oh well a lot of people just don't finish it because you know it's long or it's too complex like no there are va- it, it, i i would really hope that uh, the people i've had on that i've gotten along with the most have been the ones that have admitted like oh yeah no no it's a great book with big chunks that are just not good or not necessary and yeah, exactly they're there are plenty of chapters just just thinking back on it there are plenty of chapters where i'm like this did not need i, I again god forbid i say this but the, this did not need to be here again a lot of the end notes too i don't want to say a lot like i feel like an end note needs to be there for james's films mm-hmm. um like i really appreciated that end note some of the conversations with oren and steeply um but there are some i swear to god there was one end note that was pov was a word you'll see it later on mm-hmm. uh, i believe i don't think you've gotten to it but it's pov and he puts an end vote end note and i'm thinking oh he's going to tell us what point of view the end note literally just says point of view and i'm like i didn't need that i i, I feel like you know it's insulting i almost feel like to the reader's intelligence to end note pov i know what pov everyone does well he you wanted know. to break up the rhythm and the flow of the novel so you would go back, back and you don't and again that's and to me even as a fan of the book, to me, I get upset with that because it comes off almost as like a little unorganized. And again, it's like the book has its own immune system because as soon as you say that, oh, this comes off as unorganized, un, you know, not as well edited or whatever, it's like, that's the whole point. You know, you just don't get it. And that's, again, one of the frustrating things about about coming across Infinite Jest is people, you know, you want this explanation. You kind of want this, like, I need to know more. And people say, move on. You didn't get it. And it's like, well, you know, nobody else would say that about any other book, you know, like you didn't get it. It's really this masterpiece. Just don't worry, move on. Well, I think that also, again, comes down to what people get out of the book where it's, they are identifying with it so personally that I do, I have met people and I've spoken to people since starting this podcast where to not like this book or to insult this book, they almost take it as it, the, the feeling is almost one of blasphemy or like personal insult, like, well, if you don't get this book, then you wouldn't get me. So that's, you know, that's on right. you. Right. 
and that, that that comes back down to the the kind of idea of of Wallace himself and the book. You know, it's sort of people again connect with this on a personal level. So, mm-hmm. yeah, instead of looking at it and separating author from fiction and just looking at it like, well, let's look at this as just a piece of fiction, mm-hmm. it becomes no, this is like a Bible to me. So, yeah, right. All right, let's roll through some more of these notes right, here. Uh, Amnat is trying to avoid a sack pop with Sabor. I must say, I actually did kind of like, and uh, I, this is my own personal taste for uh, a lot of history stuff. I do like a lot of the machinations that go into these big conflicts, even though represented here by prepubescent children. But I do like some of the negotiations here. Amnat is trying to avoid a sack pop with Sabor. They're currently ahead in Kenwin. But if they have to get into throwing have haymakers with Sabor, they'll still beat them, but it will leave them depleted and vulnerable to Irlibsir. I'm just going to pronounce it that way. Lord switches to the White Beanie, indicating temp- temporary cessation of Spasex between the two combatants, but allows all other combatants to continue. Somewhere the point is made that Lord, go figure, is playing a god role. There we go. Uh, Sabor and Amnat meet up on the court ge- un- unintentionally, but geographically roughly Sierra Leone to parlay while the old world leaders sit around or try to catch snowflakes on their tongues. While this happened, Red China sends a lob to impact hitting the city of Karachi. They can't agree on whether this is a direct or indirect hit. Lord is stressed as he was paying attention to calculating between Sabor and Amnat and couldn't actually see what the strike was. He pleads with Pemulus for an independent ruling who declines, reminding Lord that, quote, Lord is God. Lord begins to cry. J.J. Penn on impact says the snow should alter everyone's blast zones, the actual snow that is falling on the court, and the whole game should be recalculated. Pemulus gets up and gives him a tongue lashing. Uh, Oh, a little note here. He is also an avowed enemy of all pens everywhere. J.J.'s older brother, Miles, had deemed Pemulus, age 11, as penisless, and poor Pemulus was so young and naive he thought this meant he could actually lose his penis if not careful. That seems to be a favorite of older kids bullying younger kids, that your, your ding-dong is going to fall off. I, I never fell for it because I was a super smart kid, but uh, I, I do remember older kids being like, yeah, you know, if you get a there's, a... there's a kid got it caught in a fence jumping over, and that's it. He's just gone. You, there's you, Nothing you, scares an adolescent male more than uh, some sort of phallus joke or 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 horror stories freud freud was full of some shit but he was right there is something as little kids i remember like playing with my cousin when i was like 12 and anytime they got near me just covering my crotch and they're like what the fuck are you doing it's like it's i don't know people are coming after but of course me and my friends at that time were hitting each other i was i was fucking 13 years old when jackass was big yes there were a lot of testicles being hit for fun all over the place yeah i I was as well on that train. I think I was, uh, actually I was, I was, how old are you? I am 33. Oh, okay. I'm 30. So, okay. Uh, yeah, that would be about right. I think I was 10 when Jackass yeah. came out that all the rave, especially of course the Catholic school, you know, the our, our, our age difference is just enough that I probably would have been there to tell you, Hey, that penis is going to fall off. If you're not yeah, careful. Exactly. <laughs> Don't tell your brother or nothing. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking the other day just how fucking absurd it is that like, oh yeah, no, a lot of my young, it's so ridiculous that like in your young teenage years, your genitals are just really turning on. And all of a sudden, at least when it comes to men, we just start hitting each other in them for fun. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, your testicles drop. Let me help you with that. You know, yeah. pull nut tap. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a new toy. We're all excited for you. And like any other new toy, you want to play with your friend's new toy, even if it means you're probably breaking it and his mom's going to get mad at you. 
There's some uh, psychological thing going on there that like mine's better than yours, so I gotta hit yours, you know. Yeah, yeah. Let you know. <laughs> Let you know who's boss, ball tap. <laughs> um, okay, footnote one twenty nine, Pemulus's character, known as a great friend and bad news enemy. Even those who don't like him are careful not to cross him, as he likes uh, he likes revenge and is not above shocking your doorknob or dosing your water jug, again referencing the Port Washington DMZ opponent. Or setting up your mirror strange so you see something terrible, which he eventually did to the older pen, who was so affected he no longer shaves and has not been the same since. Do we find out what that is? Because that is really, it's enticing, but it does not sound like something real world. You mean as far as his brother? Well, what the fuck did he do with a mirror? Because he made it sound like he put it at just such an angle. I don't know. I actually don't know, and I can't remember if that, if that okay. is in there um you do there is a chapter um pemulus becomes a large part of the book actually i don't want to say mm. large like he's a main character but he becomes a constant and not that he isn't already but it, it, he becomes a pretty integral part of the story yeah he um, seems to be and, like a, a mischievous agent of chaos who's definitely yeah, gonna set exactly. some set some things rolling exactly he's the loki of the story essentially mm -hmm. and, and the drug dealer too um but his brother comes in it's actually one of the main things i'm not going to spoil anything by giving away story but one of the major themes that i feel like isn't present yet or very subtly present uh is actually abuse um parental abuse whether okay. verbal sexual physical um that come that pops up we don't really see too much from young pemulus but we do see a pretty telling story from his older brother that's actually quite quite uh, it, it's telling for both brothers, I feel like, but you, yeah, you're going to see that later on. And it becomes, I feel like a major theme um, okay. in the book itself. But I, as far as the mirror thing, I don't know. You, they do go into a little bit of detail on the, on the dosing of the, of the okay. water, but um, other than that, yeah. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. Cause that's another, again, uh, actual action happening. Um, yeah. All right. So this becomes the overall argument. Uh, between Pemulus and who the hell did I say that was? Pemulus and JJ Penn. Um, yeah, the whole thing is whether well, whether or not the the field of play is a representative map of the territory or the actual territory. Uh, his, Penn's argument is the snow would affect this, but it, yeah, if it's actual territory, snow would affect this. But if it's just representative of a map of the territory, then it does not. Axford yells something back to Pemulus to rile him up further. Pemulus gets angrier and angrier with the argument whether the snow would be real. Comments about how this arguing brings out the most of his Irish blue collar you typically see. Um, well, I go on a rant here. Hal wonders if he isn't secretly snobbish about the class struggle in Pemulus, but then thinks the fact that he's even thinking this is something a snob would never consider, so he must not be a snob. And bookish, overeducated boys everywhere yell out in unison, Oh my God, I've thought that same thing too. Uh, <laughs> I, I mentioned it before, but I did like my little note here, so I'll say it again. Uh, is there a difference in literary worship? I've always liked people that I thought would condense profound truths, like say something beautiful and wise, like Dostoevsky or Vonnegut. Uh, right. Hunter S. Thompson built a career by writing the famous high watermark speech in Fear and Loathing and then never even scraped its greatness for 40 years after. But I wonder if DFW isn't closer to a J.K. Rowling or Stephanie Seymour or General Y.A. because it's, they all seem to run on identification. Telling a fantastic story and putting an everyman in there for the reader to repeat, oh my God, The Hunger Games Girls is just like me. That's, that's actually really great. Uh, that's a great point. Um, I like that comparison too because I think, that, I think that you've brought up Vonnegut as well. 
um, in previous podcasts. And that's a great point that sort and Dostoevsky, who's I, I would agree, I'm not just saying this to get brownie points, but my favorite author as well, um, that kind of has this universal, this, this sort of idea of that's a great point you know, about the universe. And then, and then like, I, I, I would say those guys, they almost come off like uh, a little more sage, like, like reading their book. It's almost like, if you think very, very old times, like you passed an old man on the corner who's was already telling this story and you sat down and listened as opposed right. to books like this. I feel like he came up to you and said, Hey, sit down. I got something to tell you. Yeah. And can't, you, can't you identify with this sort of thing? Yeah. I identify with none of this. No, right. no, like even the, but I, I, I've been fair about this, that uh, one of the things we've hit on is that when people read this book really depends on their reaction to it. And I think I, I was just not at an age to be charmed anymore by this kind of thing, just because every, every, I'd already been picked clean. I, I had Vonnegut, I had Tom Waits, I had really cheesy heavy metal that still got through to me somehow that by the time I got to this, that I understand that a lot of people identify with Hal and something that like, you know, Oh, am I a snob? Well, the fact that I'm thinking I'm a snob means I'm probably not a snob that I was just so far past that, that it, that, that, that means nothing to me though. If you have that feeling and you've never really articulated that out loud, I could see that really hitting you like, Oh my God, that's in my own head, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, da, 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 da. sorry, looking at looking at my notes here. You're good. JJ Penn is threatening to quit and go inside for Coco. I'm so glad there's at least one character that was willing to say like, "This is dumb." I'm gonna, I, I, I'll stop. Uh, um, it's becoming clear the terms between Amnet and Sabor is to not have Sabor go sack pop or on Amnet, but on Irlibsir, as this will be mutually beneficial to both. We see Ingersoll, who's ugh, this motherfucker, head of Earlibs here, conclude this in real time. So he makes the prudent decision of making it harder for Sabor and Amnot to reach any agreement. Again, this is a little bit of the strategy that I really like here. Like, okay, those, whatever decision those two come to, it's going to fuck me over. So all I can do is make sure they don't come to an agreement. So he takes a warhead that he doesn't lob, but sends a surgical strike right into the back of Ann Kittenplan's head. And is twelve years old and a half, yeah, a twelve and a half year old giant steroid monster. That I'm a little upset that they could not cast accurately for that Decemberist music video because I would have <laughs> liked to have seen it. Just um, get some huge hulking, yeah, yeah, hulking child. Uh, no Eschaton player has ever directly attacked an individual combatant this way. Ingersoll points that points out that as she is Sabor's air marshal, he's not only eliminated Sabor's ability to launch, but also caught Amnat in the blast zone. He dickishly adds, though I'm still not sure how the show how the snow will affect it. Pemulus and Anne scream at Ingersoll, while Lord shockingly unlocks a box at the bottom of his food cart and puts on the dreaded red beanie for utter global crisis. This has only happened once when the calculations showed a three-way sack pop had ignited the atmosphere. Pemulus is furious with Lord. Lord says we have a problem. Inger, Ingersoll lobbed the ball at Sierra Leone, which has no computational value. Ingersoll points out it gained value when the heads of states of warring nations chose to parlay there. I really like this because I have always liked that dickhead. Like, if there's a big, made-up, stupid game that, like, well, no, it's really big and it's important, it's super calculated, and one idiot shows up to just be like, well, if that, then 
why not this? And literally just like pull, pulls a supporting beam from under the entire thing and it just collapses. Whose side yeah. are you on here? Do you think Ingersoll did the right thing? I think he did. I, I No, I totally agree. And great, now we're pontificating on which, which kid did the right thing here. But yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I really, I, I think you, you kind of nailed it there that the, there's always, again, this is the video game or just the game in general, how they entertain themselves through all these young, intelligent, precocious kids. But there's always that kid, you know, it's like personalities don't change in that regard to come in and, mm-hmm. and, and save it or fuck things up, uh, so to speak, anyway. Uh-huh. I was like, I shot you. You're supposed to be dead. No, uh, yeah, I'm, totally. I'm wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Pemulus is screaming and jumping up and down outside the fence, which we saw in the video. Uh, the Lord, that Lord is capitulating to Ingersoll, who is attempting to fuck with the very foundation of what makes Eschaton work. Hal and Axford watch as Pemulus is so angry, his yacht captain's hat tumbles to and fro and then off his head, an action they'd only ever seen in our uh, cartoons. He argues players can't be valid targets. They are not actively in the game. They are the apparatus of the game. Lord checks the book and says there's nothing that says players can't be targeted. There's nothing that says that a dog can't be the quarterback. If they choose to leave their defense areas, which they did, Pemulus is losing his shit. Players aiming at players robs the game of its data and order and skill, and the whole fucking thing breaks down. Lamont, too, argues if no values are predetermined for players, then it cannot be calculated into the game. Lamont, too, has a good point. Doesn't matter. Uh, Pemulus is basically yelling at God, Lord, to not change the rules and fuck over the game world forever. Kitten Plan seethed with desire to physically harm Ingersoll. She grabs a warhead and launches it at Ingersoll, who blocks it and points out she can't do that because she's already been vaporized. She grabs more and pursues Ingersoll, who flees his territory and megatonnage. Lord pleads for order, but the authority figures of the game seem to agree that Ingersoll deserves cruel retribution for tampering with the rules. The kids pummel him. Trolls tries to intervene, but Pemulus grabs him and insists that justice be meted out. Very full metal jacket kind of yeah. private pile here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it becomes, obviously, towards the end of this conflict, it becomes all-out chaos. Mm-hmm. What started off as a nice game with mean integers and everything becomes this uh, melee kid, of Kids pegging each other. Yeah, exactly. And it gets worse than that, obviously, <laughs> towards the end, so. Uh, two other players uh, with previous issues against Kitten Plan pair off and attack her in a pincer movement. Lord tries to gain control, which leads to him being pelted in the breastbone. He then flicks the beanie propeller, indicating an Armageddon-style scenario. Uh, Kitten Plan drops her racket and knocks someone out with a right cross. The kids aren't even using tennis balls at this point. <laughs> a funny line here. Quote, Josh Gopnik punches Lamont Chu in the stomach, and Lamont Chu yells that he's been punched in the stomach. And he then throws up in the Indian Ocean. <laughs> Hal watches all of this completely transfixed and absorbed and shows almost no reaction or action. Clearly something about all us watching transfixed by the end of the world and mass death because we're all so damned entertained by it. I get That's where it kind of annoys me. It's like, I get it, okay? I yeah. was enjoying it. I get it. Enough. Uh, a collision, quote, a noise like the historical sum of all cafeteria accidents everywhere sends Lord's food cart and the computer careening into the court, mass destruction. The hard drive goes flying into the air. Lord dives to save it and collides with a puking Lamont Chew as the hard drive shatters on the pavement. The monitor falls with its screen facing to the sky and its monitor pleading error as Lord falls headfirst into it, crashing through the glass screen. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Like it. Like it a lot. 
and back to that point actually where they're all like he says transfixed on what's happening in armageddon and the end of the world mm -hmm. um and you said you know i kind of i get it i get it aside from the, the this chapter's technical jargon and abbreviations uh that kind of is one of the i, I felt like really great points of this chapter is as we watch and become sort of enmeshed in our own in like watching media and what's happening uh we treat it almost like it is a game in a sense you know there's this work there's this world conflict in different nations and you know how easy is it to just say something is like oh palestine's at it with israel again you know those sort of things and we're just transfixing on, on whatever that narrative whatever that narrative was watching the end of the world as it was. I mean, that's, and I, more, I think that, 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 that's more at now than ever. Just like we're yeah. literally we're watching shit go down and in the midst of a global pandemic and like rising authoritarianism and yeah. all we can really do is watch. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And we, <clears throat> I think that <clears throat> speaking about this and the, and the conflict, it, it it relates sort of to the idea of the entertainment because mm -hmm. it becomes something that's supposed to be serious. Um, he puts in as, as a game, this whole right. chapter of the game and being entertaining, um, but speaks about, again, going back a few uh, 20, 30 minutes, whenever we were reciting it, um, these are future world leaders. Mm -hmm. These are people that will be essentially at the helm making these decisions about conflicts and war and all of these things. And this is sort of their first taste at it and they see it as a game essentially an entertaining game to them, which it becomes to us as well as we watch it unfold on, on the news or wherever else. And I think some of the more intricate political details would are, are going to come in the, in the, in the following chapters, we're going to get an idea of the president, which uh, I, I'm sure you're going to like that chapter. It's very interesting. Okay. Um, Cause I'm not going to spoil anything, but I, th I think some of the politics about this come out a little bit further in a couple more chapters. So. Okay. It's just, yeah, I, I really love the idea of the real world played out as a game with children. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite comics, Kurt Metzger actually has a joke on just how we're all fucked. He talks about if anyone's ever played Monopoly and if you've been like the banker and so, like, that's why the future has no hope because like, you know, zero stakes, nobody who's played the banker has never not cheated. Like you're not a bad guy. You just wanted to take an extra 200 while you were yeah. stuck in jail. But pocketing you, fives to start and then hundreds and exactly that is a, for a fake game with like pink money you will step over your grandma and yet if you're a banker with real millions of dollars and people you don't even know like what chance do any of us have right um <laughs> another note i have here i think i mentioned before but yeah the last five pages of this scene are all one paragraph which has been a pet peeve of mine but like given the action that's unfolding it doesn't it, like it feels to me like this is where that kind of thing should be used. Whenever I've read something in a book, maybe that's just my own interpretation. When I see a, a long run on chapter that always strikes me as almost like an action scene in a movie where there's like a lot of fast cuts. Like this is all this, it, like you're being barraged with information for a specific reason, which felt very appropriate in this scenario, both metaphorical, I mean, literal, you know, children going crazy, beating the shit out of each other, but metaphorical global thermonuclear annihilation. Yeah, you don't want to break in the chat. In the, I'm sorry, the chapter rather, the paragraph there. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where that's where I, I always the same thing. You know, as soon as you're reading and you're realizing, you know, there's something that goes off kind of in your head or shouldn't go off, but if it does, it's like, wow, this there's not been a chapter break. It's like this is the important information. You know, this is where my focus needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. 
So you said that you had some criticisms of his writing. What, what would you say you would put that on? Oh, put that on overall. Like what, what would be some of your uh, criticisms? And if you had any examples crop up here that really stick out for you? I don't think uh, any of my critics, I'll tell you, I don't think there it's anything new, you know, that, mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm, you know, really saying, but um, I don't think just as the book as a whole, I don't think that the book itself and I said this earlier, justifies its length. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think it's a great story. I do. I, I, I like the story. I like the book. Um, I wouldn't say it's in my top 10 or one of my favorites, but it's one that I would, I would recommend to the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't think it justifies its length. I think that again, criticism with so much technical jargon, I get it again. Like I said, the book has its own immune system because any criticism towards it, which, which I think, you know, I, I hate in general, but any criticism towards it is taken as you just don't get it, you know, or there's so much, there's so much detail ad nauseum that you kind of get lost in the story. You know, you kind of, mm-hmm. and you, you, again, like I said, get bored or, or you don't, you don't care about the story so much. So that's, that's one plus the story arc itself uh, with the, with the Sharpinski gear or whatever mm-hmm. uh, that again, does not do it for me. And those are just a few criticisms. I, I have criticism about every author. I have criticism about myself, you know, so don't think that I'm standing here. Okay. If you would, if you would please, please list those off, please list those. If you don't mind, just before we wrap up and tell people to buy your book. <laughs> I think that, I think that, uh, well, one, one thing that, one thing that is always the biggest criticism and especially I would say the number one thing is Wallace was very self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. Um, you can pass it off as one th- and this is a criticism about any author no matter what they're always going to call you self-indulgent because there's always a piece of you coming out but if you're going to write about it roughly at a, 1100 pages mm-hmm. um and and you can say like that was the whole point or whatever um but there was something in wallace that did want to flex his literary and intellectual muscle there um i think personally mm-hmm. uh, to the point where it, it becomes too much to some to to an extent uh, you know, just reading it, but it does, I would say the biggest thing is it, it is a little bit self-indulgent. Please, any major David Foster Wallace fans, I like the book as well. Please don't kill me for this, but that's, that was, that would be my main criticism on the book itself. Okay. So, uh, in summary, Reese Laresh hates David Foster Wallace <laughs> and thinks all of his fans are too dumb to enjoy his book, God's Unwanted Child, available. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, that's, that's what I was trying to get across here. Uh, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah. Man. This has been fun. I like, uh, like I said, you, you you got into some. I'm glad I had somebody who had a little bit more of an authority than me, just as somebody who has sure. actually done the work of putting a book together. I w- I wouldn't say I'm necessarily authority on Wallace. I I again read and write a lot, so hopefully people aren't listening to this like, oh, this guy wrote his thesis on Wallace because I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just my personal from the writers. Uh, in, in in the next few weeks, we have somebody coming on who wrote their thesis on Wallace. So, oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. per- then. <laughs> get the, please don't again. Not an authority or anything. I would say just on a last because I know we're wrapping up. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I did want to say was <clears throat> the dynamic. If you like uh, Infinite Jest, those listening right now, there is a book. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a it's actually a philosophical text called uh, Entertaining Ourselves to Death. Uh, yes, entertaining ourselves to death by Neil Postman. Okay. Um, and a, a listener actually last week brought up that in one of his college classes was, you know, is is uh, is our world more like 1984 or Brave New World? And he said both. Well, this book makes the 
argument for Brave New World, which is, again, entertaining ourselves to death. Wallace, this came out in, I think, 1984 or five, I believe, the same year for Orwell's 1984, or, or that would be set in. Uh, but the, the reason I bring that up is because if you like it, Wallace was very heavily influenced by that. Uh, it comes out in the writing as well. Uh, that okay. was a that was a major part of Infinite Jest. If you don't like Infinite Jest, I would suggest something a little smaller. Uh, Wallace's literary nemesis was Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with it. Oh yeah, I've heard all about that. And he's one of he is one of my favorite authors. I do like Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, and Less Than Zero would be a great great read if you don't like Infinite Jest, which okay. touches on kind of a lot of the same issues, you know, parental and 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 drug addiction and all that. So especially in youth. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll definitely look into that. Lessons here. All right. Uh, least the rest. Thank you, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate right. it. So one more time, where can we find you on social media and uh, where can we find your book? Uh, so the, uh, my social media account is Protestant guilt. Again, I don't really post much there. That's on Twitter. Uh, I, I think I have like 20 followers, so mm. don't, don't think I'm some <laughs> Titan of social media here. Uh, and then of course my book is on Amazon. It's God's unwanted child. So awesome. All right. Well, Reese the rush God's unwanted child, check it out. I'm now going to stop recording, but you and I can still talk for a few minutes. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>